Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. Take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 145 of Reclaiming the Faith. In today's episode, my wife and I get into Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, and discuss what it means that uh, Jesus existed in the very form of God. We also look at some early Christian analogies for the Trinity, and I think you're going to be really blessed by this episode. If you are, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, please be in prayer for me as I am about halfway through with my third book. And this book is about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So go look that up if you want to see what I'm thinking and writing about. But yeah, I hope to be done with that in the summertime. Uh, so please be in prayer for me as we do that. Also, I want to let you know that I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency. And uh, please go to our Rumble page now uh, and subscribe there. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. Also, you can find Reclaiming the Faith on the Omega Frequency Blue YouTube channel. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 145. All right, so Paul writes, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in the, sorry, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is just an incredible passage. Um, I don't know how you rank Bible passages, but I would guess like in the New Testament, this is probably like top five passage. Uh, Just incredible theology and call to personal application in this passage. Um, got the crucifixion, uh, the resurrection and, uh, ascension glorification of Christ, um, talking to us about judgment, the judgment to come. Basically, there is a whole, whole lot here. And, uh, tonight though, we're going to get into basically the incarnation and, um, yeah, yeah, pretty much incarnation stuff. So uh, let's let's dive in. So chapter two, verse five says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. All right, so Paul is telling us to have the same mindset, uh, the same approach toward God, the same approach toward others uh, as Christ Jesus. And and the way he says that, we're going to go right into verse 6, basically. We're going to spend a whole lot of time in verse 6. And he says, the attitude that was in Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, 
He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. So first I wanted to look at this word form. He existed in the form of God. Now that word is morphe, morphe in the Greek. And it, what it means is it's a form that, in, but it's particularly an outward expression that embodies essential inner substance so that the form is in complete harmony with the inner essence, all right? So Morphe is the form that embodies the inner, the essential inner substance so that the form is in complete harmony with the inner essence. Do, I, do you think I need to like really explain that or? or? Um, maybe, because it sounds really like hippie-ish. Hippie-ish. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but like harmony with the inner essence doesn't sound some, like something that makes me think of Jesus in that in the phrasing that they chose. Yeah. So basically, whatever this outer essence is, whatever this outer visible form is, it's very much a a uh, clear expression a harmonious expression with what's actually on the inside. Um, so you could think about the God who is unseen being seen by Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That outward form um, embodies, Jesus perfectly embodied the substance of God's spirit. Okay. Does that help? We're going to get into several different um, passages that will break down this idea of morphe, Jesus existing in the um, form of God. First place that you see that word morphe used is in Mark 16. Uh, and Mark 16 is describing the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the first person who sees Jesus resurrected from the dead, hey, Christine, hey, Tina, great to see you all. I didn't want to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Hey, Lanisha. Yeah. Man, we are really great. Can I can I stop? Oh for yeah, just please do. I was, I was about to do you, it. Okay, but go ahead. Christine is my next guest on the Faithful Podcast, so I'm hoping that we can get this episode out this at least part one this week. Um, she's got a really awesome testimony of seeing God's faithfulness in some really challenging times, and I know it's going to be really inspiring for a lot of you guys. So I hope you can listen to that. So, and I'm glad you're joining in. I. I'm really honored that you would join us. Yeah, we love the Patels. Yeah. Some great people. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Mark 16 is talking about the resurrection. The first person to see Jesus raised from the dead is Mary Magdalene. And if you remember in John chapter 20, when she sees Jesus, she, she doesn't recognize him immediately. She thinks he is the gardener uh, of the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, so keep that in mind. And then basically, Jesus reveals himself to her and she recognizes him, says Rabboni or teacher, rabbi, right? And uh, so Mark gives a little bit uh, different take on that, but similar. Uh, Matthew says, the sun analogy describing the Trinity helps a lot. Phil, could you explain that? Absolutely. I was planning on it. So... Uh, <laughs> And that's not my analogy. Uh, that's a Tertullian analogy, and we'll get to that. And it's not just like sun stuff, but you'll also see this fountain river stream idea coming from Tertullian. I'm, I'm actually like pretty excited about that. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. But, um, and thanks for bringing that up, Matthew. That's awesome, buddy. Mark 16, let me put it on the screen. Mark writes in verse nine, now after he, Jesus had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he, Jesus, appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along their way to the country. They went away and reported to the others, but they did not believe them either. Now, who are those two? the two disciples on the road to Emmaus yeah. in Luke 24. I never realized it said it. he appeared in a different form. I'm like a little bit caught off guard by that. I know I've read that before and I must have missed that completely. Yeah, it's pretty cool because in both circumstances, 
these disciples of Jesus, you have two male disciples, and then you have this female disciple, they don't recognize Jesus when they first see him. Remember, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him until they basically broke bread with him and their eyes were opened, right? And so it's basically what it appears, and I wouldn't be like dogmatic about this, but it appears that Jesus was in a different appearance. Yeah. He had a different appearance. But it was as as much Jesus as the one who, who was, you know, crucified on the cross. Mm. Same exact Jesus, just a different form. Um and maybe that's just like a cloaking kind of thing. I'm not sure how that all works like uh Philip being teleported, you know, in Acts 8. Not sure how all that works. But it's absolutely Jesus. It's flesh and blood Jesus, um, resurrected Jesus, but he's appearing in a different form. But the outer expression very much uh, is in harmony with the inner essence. This is Jesus. This is God. Okay. That's just a really weird passage there in Mark 16, which is bringing together John 20 and Luke 24 and uh, Matthew 28. But um, did you see BDK's question? I did not, but I will look at it. Okay. BDK says, "Is that because he had his resurrection?" But I mean, that's that's what I think. Yeah, so um, he's able to kind of change it a little bit, but it's still absolutely very much Jesus. It's just a cool little little detail that helps us understand Philippians two very well because uh, even though he existed in the very form of God. So this is like pre-incarnation. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he is in very essence God. He's just the, as we're going to see, he's the visible form of God. And you could go back to like angel of the Lord stuff in the Old Testament. We're going to hit a little bit of Old Testament in a minute, but let's go through some of these passages. You can see as it's already 716 that uh, it's a good thing we decided to split these into... uh, (laughs) Into two parts. Christine has it. Yeah, Christine wrote, uh, the one who has eyes, let him see. The one who has ears, let him hear. They had spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. Love it. Yeah, awesome, Christine. Awesome. Um, Here we go. So let's do John 1. This is getting into some of the form of God stuff. All right. Uh, In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God and the word was God. Uh, There's no indefinite article like you would see in some Mormon Bibles uh, or Jehovah's Witness Bibles, like the word was a God, an indefinite article. That's not there. Uh, The word was, that's a definite article. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has not come into being. And now jumping to verse 14, and the Logos, who was in the beginning with God, was God, who created all things, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God, sorry, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. No one has seen God, and yet the only begotten God explains, reveals God. It's in very essence God, and yet he's in in a different, he's in in a, a form of God. One, the outward that reveals the inner, the inner, I said innered. (laughs) <laughs> Remember in uh, verse 18, John 1, 18, John says, no one has seen God at any time. 
yet the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's do a little bit more of the no one has seen God at any time. Even though we know in the Old Testament, um, you have uh, Rahab, right? Not, no, 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 no. Ooh, I'm having a hard time. Who is Sarah's mistress? Hagar. Hagar, there it is. Uh, she sees, or God sees her, right? Yeah. El Roy, the God who sees me, right? And so she says she had seen God, but she was most likely seeing that she was seeing the angel of the Lord who is God. Uh-huh. You have Samson's parents and Gideon. You have so many examples in the Old Testament of people seeing God and yet not seeing God. How does that work? Here's some First Timothy stuff. First Timothy 6.13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of Lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. He is the King of Kings, right? Let's let's dive into the King thing just for a, a, a minute. I'm going to go back to First Samuel chapter eight. You remember when uh, the people are begging for a king. And Samuel is really hurt by this. And then the Lord speaks to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8. And this is what he says. The thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, right? The blessed and only sovereign God, they rejected as being king over them. And yet let's come back to John 1. You remember when Jesus uh, interacts with Nathaniel for the first time or what Nathaniel thinks is the first time in, a, in essence, uh, this is what happens. Nathaniel said, how do you know me? Because Jesus had said, ha, here's an Israelite in whom there's no guile, right? Nathanael says, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Then Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It's pretty neat. He's the king. He's the embodiment of the king. And yeah, Nathaniel is, is calling him the Messiah, but he's the king of Israel. And who's the true king of Israel? It's the one who dwells in um, unapproachable light, the king of kings. Let's go a little bit deeper. What I want to do now is look at something called remez. Uh, remez is one of the teaching tactics of rabbis. And you see remez um, all through the Gospels, Jesus uses it quite a bit. Remez means hint. And so what you'll find is uh, someone asking Jesus a question and then Jesus responding with a, a piece of scripture that maybe seems like off. Yeah. Seems like it's a non sequitur maybe. Like what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Mm-hmm. The thing is, remez is kind of like a game between people who know the scripture. So if you know the text, you're able to play along. And so remez, basically, if you, like someone, uh, sorry, the the children, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the children are singing Hosanna, right? Hosanna. And the Pharisees tell them, tell Jesus, tell those, those, your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus says, I tell you, uh, if if they don't, yeah, if they stop shouting, basically the rocks will cry out. And there he's quoting Habakkuk. And if you look at the context of that quote in Habakkuk, um, it's, it, God, is, God is basically prophesying the demise of his enemies, of the rebellious people in, uh, in Jerusalem at that time. They're about to get annihilated by the Babylonians. 
And so if you know the text, you can play along. Basically, Jesus is saying, you guys are going to get crushed. You're God's enemies. You're on the wrong side of this. All right. And uh, so, so let me show you a little bit of, of Remez going on. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard someone say that um, cool game analogy. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've ever heard someone. Sorry, BDK said that cool game analogy. Yeah, it is a little game. Um, so uh, I don't know if you've ever heard someone say Jesus never flat out calls himself God in the New Testament. Yeah. Well, an answer to that is he absolutely does, but you're reading the Bible as an American instead of reading it as a first century Jew because Jesus absolutely calls himself God numerous times in the Gospels. He just does it in a Jewish way because he's Jewish. All right. So here's some examples of Remez. Let me uh, go to this one first. This is Matthew 11. How many times have you heard messages on this? Come to me, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, how many times have you heard um, messages on that, which are good messages, which are basically saying, you know, Jesus is calling you to not be so anxious, to not be so stressed out, come and learn from him, take his yoke upon him. You know, he's got love your neighbor, love God, that kind of, that's the way they approach it a lot of times. Jesus is saying something so much uh, deeper than that. He's calling himself God. And when you do remez, you look at the context of who says that they will give you rest for your souls. Who says that you'll have rest for your souls. Well, he's actually quoting Jeremiah and look who says it in Jeremiah. So this is Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Mm. It's the Lord God. It's Yahweh who's speaking there. Yahweh gives us rest. And so what Jesus is actually saying there is more than just, I give you rest. He's saying, I'm Yahweh. And if you didn't, if you didn't think that was a, a spot on one, you're going to see a tie-in in Ezekiel with something Jesus says in, in Luke 19. And you're also going to see a tie-in with this Ezekiel passage, not to, just to the Jeremiah one, but also to Matthew 25. So check this out. This is pretty great. So Jesus is... Um, He's on the way to Jericho and he enters Jericho and they're up in a sycamore fig tree. And there's, uh, that's a crazy story that goes back to Genesis three. But um, he sees this tax collector named Zacchaeus, the wee little man. A wee little man was he? Very good. Uh, <laughs> and um, Zacchaeus comes down. And Jesus says, I'm going to eat at your place. They eat. At a point in the meal, Zacchaeus says, uh, Rabbi, behold, half of everything I have, I give to the poor. And then if I've defrauded anyone out of anything, I'm going to pay them back four times as much. And by the way, that goes back to, that's, that's Remez also, that goes back to Nathaniel confronting David. Check that out. It's the only place where someone is paid back fourfold. And basically what Zacchaeus is saying is, I'm the one who deserves to die. Awesome little case of uh, Remez right there. And then Jesus answers that Remez of Zacchaeus with Remez of his own. It's pretty great because Jesus says, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Behold, you know, this man too is a child of Abraham because the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. Who comes to seek and save the lost? All right, so check this out. And basically that's, that's kind of getting to who is the son of man. It's not just the manly version. It's not just the human side of Jesus. I don't know if you've heard that in messages, but it's so much deeper than that. And I don't have time to really dive into Daniel 7 right now. But here is one example where Jesus is saying, I am God. Who came to seek and save the lost? Let's dive into Ezekiel 34, okay? This is the Lord God talking says, I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, mm. declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost 
to bring back the scattered, to bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Now, you saw the connection to Jeremiah and Luke 19 and Matthew 11. Who judges between the sheep and the goats? God does. Let's check out Matthew 25, okay? (laughs) Yeah. Matthew 25. And yes, you're right. God does. Or the Son of Man. Yeah, check it out. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. The Son of Man is the Lord God. He is the visible form of the invisible. All right, uh, Melito talks about this a little bit in, um, in 170 AD or CE, depending on how you want to say it. Melito, early Christian writer says, then did the whole creation see clearly that for man's sake, the judge, capital J, the, the judge was condemned and the invincible was seen and the illimitable was circumcised. And the impassable suffered, and the immortal died, and the celestial was laid to the grave. God was put to death. The king of Israel was slain. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And uh, Matthew brought up... uh, the Tertullian analogy of the sun uh, and the rays. And I was planning on doing that next week, but just because you said it, I'm going to pull it up real quick, Matthew. All right. And it's, it's uh, a little bit decent amount of reading. Oh, did I, did I exit out of that? I will be very upset at myself. All right. Give me a second. Right. Or you want to actually read it. All right. So I'll just paraphrase. All right. So, uh, if you want to hear a full breakdown of this, I did a podcast on the Trinity. I believe it's just called the Trinity um, that you can listen to on Reclaiming the Faith. I don't remember what episode it is. It might be like the 60s I'll look or it up something. And post it. But uh, it's got a really good breakdown. But he, here's here's the Trinity analogy that that Tertullian gives. He says basically that you could think of God the Father like the Son. Um, he's not a Son worshiper at all. But this is just an analogy, and all analogies break down eventually. But think of God like the sun. Now, rays from the sun, rays that come from the sun, uh, are part of the sun. It's actually part of the sun. But the ray is not greater than the source because it comes from the source, the ball of of the sun. Okay? So the ray is every bit as much sun as the ball of light is sun. Light and gas or whatever is sun. But Matthew says it's 56. That's also, uh, that's awesome. To it. <laughs> yeah, and Jen says, I have a family reunion coming up and most of my family is modalist. All right, so that would be a great episode to listen to because he breaks down specifically how what the early Christians believed is, is antithetical to modalistic monarchianism. All right, so check that out. It's a really great analogy. It has worked so well with... Um, Jehovah's Witnesses that I've talked to, um, it's really been a great uh, analogy for them to grasp. And you could think of like the heat of the sun uh, as not being greater than the sun, that the heat is actually, I mean, it's part of the sun, but um, it's not greater than the sun. And so you could think of the rays and the heat like Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But uh, I think the ray analogy is a little bit better than heat. Uh, Tertullian goes into like the, the uh, apex of the light being like the Holy Spirit. But he also does an analogy of a fountain that's just coming up out naturally, like a natural fountain that comes up out of the earth that will produce a river, which can produce streams, all flowing from the same fountain. So the fountain is the source. The river is not greater than the fountain. And the stream is not greater than the, fa- than the fountain. 
but it's all the same water. It's all coming from the same source. So like the fountain is begotten of the, sorry, the, the river is begotten of the fountain and the stream is begotten of the fountain, but it's all coming from the same source. So that's how they would describe the Trinity, two ways that they describe. They also talked about roots and trunk and branches, that kind of idea, or roots and branches and fruit. All the same tree, but the fruit comes from the branches which come from the root. Uh, that's another one that Tertullian uses. And um, it was uh, it's a really good analogy for, for me. Um, so let's keep going, all right? What's, what's modalism? Uh, it's basically saying one God existing in, in three different modes at three separate times, but he's not... Uh, it's not like God the Father is existing in heaven while God the Son is down on earth. It's 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 one God existing in three separate ways at three at different times. Okay. Yeah. As best I as best I remember it. If someone has a better definition for it, feel free to post that and we'll put it up there. Uh so um let's let's keep going in Philippians 2. All right, so this is Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the very form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. All right, so uh, let's talk about um, math. Uh, math, grasped. I was seeing Matthew's comment, and Matthew said, uh, I've always heard the analogy of an egg growing up but the sun is a better analogy. Leave it to the early Christians to give awesome analogies, right? Well, a lot of them, these were probably analogies that originated in the first century that just kind of kept getting passed on. So yeah, they're going to have some pretty amazing analogies because they're probably getting them from the apostles. Yeah. You know, so pretty cool stuff. I like when you have your little dyslexic moments like you. Oh, you like that when I said, let's talk about math. Math. <laughs> Grass and Matthew formed uh, math. I don't know how that happens. But it's pretty cool when I was doing youth ministry because I'd be doing something serious and then I'd say something that made absolutely no sense. There was a combination of a couple of ridiculous things and um, everybody would get a good laugh. Provide a comic relief. They could take a breath and then get back into the intensity. Yeah. Uh, all right, so... What does this, this word grasped mean? Uh, oh, it's actually very close to it. Think about, um, you know, the, the term rapture, which comes from this uh, term harpazo uh, from 1 Thessalonians 4. That's actually a pretty interesting way to think about this term grasped. It's to seize something. Uh, by an open display of force. Now, if we're thinking, you know, like rapture and, you know, man, BDK and I've, we've done some ready with and answers on this stuff. And for anybody out there who who wonders, we are uh, pre-wrath basically. So we line up this rapture event with the return of Christ. Like it's all one event. The return is when we are snatched up not separate. And we're getting that um, most clearly from 2 Thessalonians 2. And I believe Justin is right there too, as well. Two as well. I was really, really, really redundant. Um, I didn't even catch it until you made a thing about it. <laughs> yeah. So, but this grasp is not a positive thing. It's not like, this is not like a positive uh, snatching your kid who's about to walk out on the street and get hit by a bus and you just snatch him and rip him back, you know, display a force to save someone. This is different. This is thinking like to be exploited for one's own personal advantage type, type of feel. So let's look at a couple examples of this kind of an idea of trying to seize something by force in a negative context. Okay, I'm not going to look at the exact word, but I'm going to look at the ideas of these in some, in some passages. So here we go. The first one that Scripture points to is not the first one that you would read in Scripture. But look at Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, 
I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. You see that analogy um, and and another passage that's analogous or parallel to that in like Ezekiel 28, um, where Satan is basically trying to get God's throne. He's trying to take God's throne by force. You can see this happening in the Tower of Babel. Uh, You're going to see it later in the book of Revelation where the armies of the world with evil angels, the beast, the false prophet, Satan, all coming together to make war on God, trying to snatch this by force. They're trying to grasp God's kingdom. But you see it first in scripture, most clearly uh, with people in Genesis 3. So let's, let's highlight this for a minute. The serpent said to the woman, Genesis 3, 4, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Basically what Adam and Eve are trying to do is overtake God, or at least rid themselves of their need for God at the very least. So, um, yeah, making war on God. Now, Jesus is presented with this opportunity in Matthew chapter four during his temptation. He's presented with the opportunity to grasp that position. Let's look at that. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. This is Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. But then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Christine says, it sounds like grasp means ill-gotten gain. Jesus didn't want equality with God to be gotten in the wrong way. But didn't he already have equality with God? Yeah, and so I think what that's getting at, Christine, is this like during his incarnation. Um, and we're going to see that when, it, when he talks about emptying, him, emptying himself. So these two things go really well together. Uh, how you're seeing that he wasn't trying to like exercise his right to act as God, which you see him doing in some of the Gnostic texts, like the gospel of Thomas, I believe it is where Jesus is like turning stones into birds. I believe uh, in the gospel of Thomas uh, as a child, he's just kind of playing around with his divinity. So I think you see that, um, the opposite of Philippians 2.5 being exhibited in some of these heretical texts. So, um, like exploited? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Andrew says, trying for independence, the very sin of Satan, free will apart from God's will equals sin. That's good, man. So let's continue with Philippians 2, and we're going to get into verse Seven. So he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, though he is in very form of God. He's not trying to exploit it for his own advantage, basically. But instead, verse seven, uh, let me put it on the screen. He emptied himself right here. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men, all right? So though his outward appearance is different, it can be seen, he is God being seen, that outward appearance embodies the inner essence, is in direct harmony with the inner essence. We'll get into that um, bondservant idea in just a minute. Um, But let's think of the emptied himself 
idea. I, I don't know if y'all remember seeing the um, the uh, YouTube picture. I can't remember what the thing's called. What's YouTube that called? picture? I know it's so bad. I'm. I, you gotta give me more than that. What you? What do you mean? It's the little icon thing that people click on for the show. It starts with a T, and I thumbnail? can't think, thumbnail. There it is. So if you saw that, it was a picture of like someone pouring water out into the hands, and that's really what this uh, echinosin word means. And it comes from. Oh, they just the, said you're uh, getting old. Oh man, yep, it's true. Um, so it, it means to empty out, to render void, to be emptied, all right? And so think, let, I'm going to show several passages in John where you see Jesus um, not considering equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead emptying himself, all right? Taking the form of a bondservant. I just want to show these concepts, even though John has already established and establishes in almost every chapter that he is... Yahweh. Um, I, I want to show that. Oh, we want to put up Matthew's. Okay. Uh, Matthew says, so Jesus, so though Jesus is God, he laid down his right as God to become a man to take our place on the cross. That kind of what Paul's saying. Yeah. So check this out. These are some examples from scripture uh, that are showing this point. Okay. Because remember, John already established that Jesus is one with God. But look at John 5 up here, okay? Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All right, Jesus judges, but he doesn't, initi- he doesn't do anything on his own initiative. He only hears. So as he hears, he judge, judges because he is doing the will of God. John 8, 28, Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am, uh, I am the ego a me from, uh, that's the Septuagint version of of, uh, Exodus 3, where God says to Moses, tell them I am has sent you, ego a me. You see all of these I am statements in uh, in John. And sometimes it's, it's strictly ego a me, I am, but the NAS or other Bibles will put I am he to make it more proper in English, but it's just I am. And here's one of those places where he just says it straight out. And he does it later in John 8. Also, when he says before Abraham was, I am, and they pick up mm-hmm. stones to stone him, they recognize it's blasphemy because he's they, they recognize he's doing remez as well, uh, pointing back to Exodus 3, where he's saying, I'm the one who is in the bush. I'm Yahweh. So Jesus said to him, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me, proceeded forth from uh, a theme that you saw in First John, or sorry, John chapter one, a theme that you can see in uh, uh, Proverbs chapter eight, I believe, when you're when you're looking at wisdom that proceeded forth from God, but was there in the beginning, uh, creating with God. Um, wisdom being uh, an analogy, basically, or a, a descriptive term for either the logos uh, that Justin talks about. Uh, or the Holy Spirit, but yeah, are you okay? Yeah, no, I was just say, yeah, just thinking ahead. of the same idea as you know Jesus in the garden. You know, he's beg begging for it, the cup to pass, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Mm. So, I mean, he's emptying himself of the ability, you know, basically to take himself out of that situation because he knows what the Father wants, mm-hmm. and so he's laying his life down for that purpose. Yeah. And you can remember like him saying in John 10, uh, I lay my life down, right? No one takes my life from me. It's mine to lay down. It's mine to take up again. And yet he's not doing anything like that from his own initiative. Jesus had the power to like almost become invisible and walk through crowds without being grabbed. Mm -hmm. He can walk on water. He can turn water into wine. He can cast demons out. He can cause seas to still, 
like raging storms to still, uh, he can do whatever he wants. If he wanted to, like something I've said to, to students before is like, he could have had any woman he wanted. He could have like forced mm -hmm. people to, to do whatever they wanted for him. Mm -hmm. And yet he's not doing that. He's choosing not to do that. He's choosing only to do what the father tells him to do. And you're absolutely right, Stephanie, with him in the garden, not my will, your will be done. John 12, 49. I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. The father gave him a commandment mm. as to what to say and what to speak. And yet he is in the very form of God but he's taking orders, right? but he is God. The invisible made visible, taking the form of a bondservant, a doulos. John 14, 10, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his work. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider or regard equality with God as something to be grasped, to be exploited, to, use, to be used for his own advantage. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Uh, if you remember how Paul identifies himself in the beginning of the book of Philippians, he doesn't say an apostle of Christ Jesus. He says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. That's, what, that's the way he identifies himself. And he does that because if he's going to ask you to take on the attitude of Christ Jesus, he's going to do it first. He's a great leader, just like Jesus asks us to be like bond servants, but he becomes a bond servant first. He becomes a slave to the father uh, emptying himself of his right to do whatever he want. Just like Paul would say in uh, 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, do not Barnabas and I have the right as apostles to take a believing wife? Do we not have that right? He would also say things like, don't we have the right to take money from you basically, right? But we, no, we decided to work hard with our hands, right? So he has these rights and yet he's emptying himself of his rights. Think about Philippians chapter, sorry, Acts chapter 16, where he had his uh, Roman citizenship card with him, but he empties himself of his right to play that card and allows himself to get beat because the Holy Spirit, God is, Jesus is telling him, no, don't do that yet. I have plans for a man here, for a man and his family. And so he empties himself of his right. He becomes a bond servant. All right, let me catch up to some of these uh, quotes. Uh, Christine says, it's cool that he showed his complete unity with the Father in the exact same places that he shows us that he is also distinct. He is also a distinct entity from the Father. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Matthew said, um, claiming to be God in a Jewish way, Jesus was claiming to be God in a Jewish way because in context of Jesus' audience was was Jewish. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, Matthew says, and Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Jesus received that worship from Thomas. He didn't say, no, 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 no. Right. You can see a lot of connections between Jesus and God also in Luke 1 and Luke 2, you put these two together, they show Jesus very clearly being called Lord, God, and Savior in Luke 1 and Luke 2. Pretty awesome. And if you compare that to um, here is really the Lord, our God, Lord, Lord alone, or the Lord is one. You can see in Isaiah talking about how I am God before me, there was no God formed. And after me, there will be no other, right? I alone am God. I alone am your Savior. I'm God, your Savior. So yeah, I mean, there's so many um, parallels to these. Um, but yeah, he became an, he emptied himself of his right to, to be God, to act in equality with God, um, took the form of a bondservant. And yet 
that outward expression, Jesus showing us um, God in the flesh, it as a bondservant, doesn't that so well describe or show the inner essence of God the Father? Think about Matthew 5, uh, where Jesus calls us to love our enemies, and yet he says, uh, uh, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? In the preceding verses, though, he says, because God causes the sun to shine on both the evil and the good. He sends rain on both the evil and the good. God, as um, Paul says in Romans 5, demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, he was reconciling us to himself through the death of his son, the blood of his son. And so God in a sense, has made himself a bondservant for us. Mm-hmm. Even before the incarnation, during the incarnation, after the incarnation, God has been humbling himself in such an amazing way to bring us into his family. And Jesus most clearly embodies that humility of God. So um, as we're starting to kind of bring it home, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So he took on flesh and blood. Let's uh, look at some of these things, some of the implications for that. This is uh, Hebrews 2.14. It's going to be our last scripture for tonight, and then I want to end with a quotation from the letter to Diognetus, also called Methetes. So Hebrews 2, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. I want to pause there for a second. It's an interesting verse. Why do you say that? That last phrase, that he might free those through, wait, hold on. I can't read now. He might free those who through fear, who of, through death. fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. I think that describes a lot of us. Everybody. Yeah. I mean, the yeah, it's, I think it's, it's only natural to, to fear death and then to live your life out of that fear. And so when you look at the um when you look at the early Christians or when you look at um the martyrs around the world, they have no fear of death and they're they live their lives as free people because mm-hmm. they they have nothing to lose or nothing that this world can really take away from them because they're living for somewhere beyond this world. Hmm. You know, uh, the writer of Revelation talks about those whose name were in the book of life were not affected in any way by the second death. Hmm. There's a death that is worse than death. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, we're all going to face judgment at the end of our lives. So even if you Mm -hmm. are a believer, you're still going to face judgment and you're going to be held accountable for what you did and didn't do uh, with the time and the gifts and everything you were given. And I think a lot of times about the the parable of the talents and the, you know, the slave or whatever that buried his talent. And I don't want to end like that. That's, um, yeah, that seems like a waste of a life. Yeah. And, and, you know, like um, just naturally speaking, death is the loss of all things, the loss of everything. And so it's really interesting when you see Jesus partaking of flesh and blood too so that he might free those who through a fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Those who have nothing to lose live in a different way. If you've already lost everything, you have nothing to lose. Yeah. And so... It's interesting, and this is, man, me getting off track a little bit. But like uh, Luke 14, 
starting in verse 25. Now, large crowds were coming, were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is able, whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. What are the terms of peace? Jesus says, so then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, who is he asking you to give up all your possessions to? And this kind of comes back to that parable of the talents that Stephanie was talking about. Who gave us these possessions? Who owns the possessions? And that's when you come back to Psalm 24, verse 1 where it says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the seas and all he has made, right? Everything belongs to him. And so when we recognize that, we realize that we are incredibly blessed. <laughs> like none of us, anything good in our, anything that's good in our lives, we have received from God. It's a gift from God. Um, and that's just incredible. That means our God is incredibly merciful and he is a very loving God, as opposed to what the evil servant believes that was given one talent, which is an incredible amount of money, uh, by the way, <laughs> a just ridiculous amount of money. Um, but he says, you know, I, I knew you were a mean, cruel master reaping where you did not sow. He had a false view of God. And because of that, um, he was afraid of losing what he had. It wasn't his to begin with. If he understood that it was the master's, it wasn't his. If he had already given it to his master, once you've lost everything, you're not afraid of losing. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus says that if you want to be my disciple, you got to carry your cross and follow me. Because if you're picking up your cross, you're walking to your execution. You've lost everything already. If you're carrying a cross, what are you going to put in your hands other than the cross? You've, that's, you're holding the gun that's going to kill you. You know, you're holding the execution device. And so I'm just listening. Um, you've already lost it. And if you've got nothing to lose, you play with so much you play. I was just thinking about the Denver Nuggets back in the early 90s when they were playing against the Seattle Supersonics. The Denver Nuggets were the number eight seed going against the Seattle Supersonics, who were the number one seed. And the Kimbe Mutombo and the Nuggets just crushed the Seattle Supersonics. They were playing like they had nothing to lose. They didn't think they were going to win, so they played so loose. But the Supersonics, who had one of the best records in the league that year, were playing very tight because they had a whole lot to lose. It's the first round of the playoffs. And you're not supposed to lose to an eight seed. And yet they got crushed, similar to the Warriors and the Mavericks later on in the 2000s. I can go on. But um, we as Christians are called to give up everything to the Lord because it's his anyway. And so when we realize our, our example, Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, gave up everything for us that frees us to live with faith and not fear. What happened? BDK's comment. What do you say? Phil, are you dropping a Denver nugget of truth? It's <laughs> really... Oh, gosh. Oh. That was great. I want to close with this passage from a letter to Diognetus. And this is just a really neat passage showing Jesus' unity with the Father. It's written about like 120 or so. Here we go. The Almighty Himself, the Creator of the universe, the God whom no... I can discern has sent down his very own truth from heaven, his own holy incomprehensible word to plant it among men and ground it into their hearts 
To this end, he has not, as one might imagine, sent to mankind some servant of his, some angel or prince, is none of the great ones of the earth, nor even one of the vice uh, regents, I think, of heaven. I think that was a misspell. Misspell something. All right, ordainer. Who did he send? He sent the ordainer, disposer, and ruler of all things of heaven and all that heaven holds of earth and all that is in earth of sea and every creature therein of fires, ether, and bottomless pit of things above and things below and things in the midst. Such was the messenger God sent to men. And was his coming, as a man might suppose, in power, in terror, and in dread? Not so. It was in gentleness and humility. As a king sending his royal son, so he sent him. As God, he sent him. As man to men, he sent him. And that because he was pleased to save us by persuasion and not by compulsion. Catch that. He sent Jesus as a man to men because he wanted to save us by persuasion and not compulsion. That's just powerful. For there is no compulsion found with God. His mission was no pursuit of hounding of us. It was an invitation to us. It was in love, not in judgment that he sent him, though one day he will indeed send him to judge. And then who shall abide the day of his coming? He bore with us and in pity, he took our sins upon himself and gave his own son as a ransom for us the holy for the wicked, the sinless for the sinners, the just for the unjust, the incorrupt for the corrupt, the immortal for the mortal. For was there indeed anything except his righteousness that could have availed to cover our sins? In whom could we, in our lawlessness and ungodliness, have been made holy? but in the Son of God alone. Keep watching, pray, and wait. 